This is the business of sports. We're in a situation that we haven't dealt with in modern times. The pandemic here has really accelerated the investments that we've been advocating for for years. Almost everyone out there is hoping that there's some kind of return to normal by August, September. In-depth conversations with the leaders in the sports industry. Who wants to be the sacrificial lambs that shows up at the first big major sporting event? We're part of something much bigger than sport right now, and the health and safety of our stakeholders is what's most important. Every moment, I think we're all from a business perspective thinking about the impact that the virus is having across the country. Bloomberg Business of Sports from Bloomberg Radio. Hello, I'm Jason Kelly. And I'm Mike Lynch. And I'm Michael Barr. Over the next hour, we will explore the big money issues in the world of sports and talk to some of the biggest players in the industry. Well, and big players in the game. The game's about to begin. We think, we hope, we're going to get some perspective on the Major League Baseball season and the COVID-19 effect on it. We're going to sit down with Cincinnati Reds pitcher Trevor Bauer. He's an ace on the field. We know that. Also has some big thoughts about business. So we'll get into that in just a few minutes. But first, what a big week in sports, guys. And I got to start with the Ivy League, in part because we have an Ivy Leaguer among us. Uh, If you were uh, going to play Harvard football, Mike Lynch, uh, you wouldn't be playing this fall. It's crazy. It's it's crazy, and uh, the the Ivy League took the lead last March, where they were the first to cancel their Ivy League basketball men's and women's tournament on March 10th. And I thought they really jumped the gun on that thing, and obviously uh, they made the right call because shortly thereafter the NCAA wiped out March Madness, and we know what happened to, to the rest of spring sports. Now the Ivy League has made another bold decision that has caught the attention of everybody nationwide. And, and I talked to some people in the in the administration. I said, why can't you make this thing work for soccer or field hockey? Uh, and you know, with spacing, they said we can we can handle what's happening on our own fields. But think about this: there are Ivy League teams in some major cities. Penn is in Philadelphia. Columbia is in New York City. Brown is in Providence, Rhode Island. We're in Boston. And if we want to get on a bus and drive to Philadelphia, well, we've got to space people in the bus. So instead of taking two buses, now we've got to take four or five buses. We get to a hotel. Instead of putting two players in a room, we've got to get double the number of rooms. And who? how do we know who's working in the, in the hotels that we're staying at? Now we get to another locker room in Philadelphia. Uh, it's a small locker room. Um, how do we space people apart? How do we know who's been in there before us? And it just makes sense health-wise, not for the not for the for the for the sport reason health wise for us just to put everything on hold because there's no end in sight to this thing and so now they're pushed back to january now they're talking about perhaps playing the fall sports in the spring season but when i was at harvard i played football and baseball so what do you do in the spring do you do you you make a choice do you play football or do you play baseball do you play uh, uh field hockey or do you play lacrosse and that that's a tough call so it's going to be interesting to see how the other leagues around the country. Now, I know the big uh, power conferences are going to say, well, it's the Ivy League. You know, we're not, going to, we're not going to follow their lead. But I think it's going to get the attention of a lot of people. Well, Michael Barr, I mean, this is a money issue when it comes to that uh, breakdown. It feels like if you're in the Big Ten or the SEC, you've got, candidly, a lot more money on the line here than the Ivy League. I mean, I know when Lynchy was playing football, the crowds were enormous, just chanting his name in the stands. But it's a slightly different model now. But, you know, if you're at the University of Alabama or Clemson or, or Michigan – you, you're thinking about this a little bit differently, I think, right, Barr? 
Oh, yeah. And and this is scary because, it, it, trust me, they are all looking at what the Ivy League just did. And like you said, if you're playing for the University of Michigan, if you're playing for Alabama, and you know down in Alabama, man, it's like football there is like, <laughs> that nothing beats football Religion. there at this time, you know. And so, I I just worry if we're not going to see this happen for a lot of collegiate sports this year because of uh, the Ivy League and maybe many others following suit. Well, I just wonder if you don't have a push down south and maybe in the Midwest to start, and then they end up sort of giving up the ghost uh, at some point. Well, meanwhile, all the way out west, Stanford, which has been kind of an Olympian factory in many cases, in many sports, and for many years, Lynchy, they are saying 11 sports they're just going to cut at the end of this academic year. That's brutal. Yeah, they're looking at a $70 million shortfall right now. Uh, some of the sports that are uh, going will be uh, volleyball, wrestling, rowing. And as we've all seen around uh, all these colleges around the country over the years, when you lose a sport, you never, ever get it back. And that is so sad that some of these non-revenue sports, uh, which really make up the lifeblood of the true student-athlete, um, you know, that, that, that rows, that wrestles, uh, that plays volleyball, that runs on the cross-country team, strictly for the love of it. They don't do it for the money because they know there's not going to be a professional league when they graduate. And that, that's the sad part. So we're really losing uh, not only the sports, but we're losing the true meaning of a student-athlete at many of these schools. And if Stanford can't make it, I mean, it really is, you know, what's one of those, like, yeah. if these crazy kids can't make it in this world, who can? But, like, seriously, if Stanford can't come up with the money, I worry about the thousands of colleges and universities across the country, Bar, who aren't Stanford. That's right. And plus, you got to worry about the scholarships. You know, yeah, not everybody gets in on a scholarship uh, playing uh, football. You know, there are people who get in on a scholarship playing tennis and fencing. And all that is just going to go up in flames now. And it's sad. And like you said, Stanford, if, if they can't pull it off, it, the other colleges have to be worried about it. And again, we have to pour one out, at least temporarily, for the Ryder Cup, Lynchy. Uh, not going to be played in 2020. Yeah, we talked to... Um uh, Jay Monahan earlier this year, and I also talked with the COO of, of PGA as, as recently as a month ago. He said, we're a full go. But the players really put a lot of pressure on, on the PGA, especially Rory uh, McIlroy said, look, this is just not the same without the fans. And and I agree with him. And and, and there's no way, if nobody else is, is, is playing, and I know they are playing some golf tournaments, but this is really a fan-driven event, the Ryder Cup. And I think it's the right call. Uh, they'll get back at Whistling Straits out in Wisconsin next year. And I think it's it's the right call. After 9-11, they postponed uh, the Ryder Cup for a year. And, and, and there's no reason they can't do it again uh, this year. And they are going to do it. Well, and Barr, it's interesting. I mean, and I think Lynchy brings up exactly the right point. The fan-driven experiences are the ones that y you really can't – you just can't do them right now. I mean – other sports are able to do it without fans. That's going to be weird. Um, but, but there are certain things that you just can't do. It, what's weird about the Ryder Cup, ordinarily when you're at a golf tournament, they want the, the gallery to shut the heck up. Yeah. But at the Ryder Cup, it's a yeah. totally different atmosphere. That's and right. I think uh, Seth Moss said it the best. A Ryder Cup with no fans is not a Ryder Cup. So how can you do it? So let, 
let's hopefully that they'll play it in 2021. We got our fingers crossed. Thank you so much for joining us. We're here each and every week for you. At the same time, talking to some of the biggest names in sports this week, no exception. I'm Jason Kelly along with Mike Lynch and Michael Bart. We are so excited. Cincinnati Reds ace Trevor Bauer, one of the most outspoken players, one of the most entrepreneurial players out there. So much to talk about. What a world we are living in, Trevor. First of all, how are you? Like, what's your world like right now? Uh, it's a little bit hectic, but it's actually it's not that bad. Um, I'm in Cincinnati. We're, I guess, doing summer camp is what they're calling it. Uh, spring training 2.0, whatever it is. Um, Obviously, a lot of regulations and testing and uh, differences, but it's good to be back around baseball. It's uh, it's been I think eight months since we've really had a an extended period of baseball, so. Uh, really enjoying that part of it. Well, Trevor, a lot of tough conversations, a lot of spirited conversations, to say the, the least, getting us to this point where we are on the eve of baseball. What happened? I mean, as you look back on this, what really was the main contention point? Was it comp? Was it safety and health? Like, what really broke down here? There's a lot of issues. And I think it all kind of boils down to the distrust between the two sides. Uh it's hard to have a working relationship in in any walk of life, business, baseball, personal, friendship, whatever, if you don't trust the other side. If you think the other side is trying to take advantage of you, then it's very hard to sit down and work together and try to find some agreement. Uh, and I don't think that the players trust MLB, and I don't think MLB trusts the players right now. So from the very beginning, I think the first mistake, the biggest mistake that was made in the entire thing was – to make it a public, mm-hmm. um, to, to negotiate in the public sphere. I mean, the first thing that was that happened was the uh, the owners leaked to the media that they were considering uh, proposing a 50-50 revenue split, and that actually never happened. They didn't actually propose that in, in any official way. They just leaked it to the media, and then obviously players reacted to that, fans reacted to that. Um, they were able to judge public perception of it, and then they ended up not submitting that and submitting something different, but it started everything being negotiated in the public sphere. So if you look at it from a business owner's perspective, like if you're only worried about this year and trying to save the bottom line this year, it, it may make some sense because you're negotiating and trying to get the best deal possible. You're putting pressure on either side. And ultimately they got a pretty good deal for them in the way I see it. Um, they, you know, they negotiated for what I figured they wanted the entire time, which was as few games as possible to have a postseason uh, where they pay players as little as possible during the season and, and then get postseason money. Uh, so you could say that they did a good job on the other side of negotiating it, but the problem is it's a short-sighted tactic. They're only worried about this year and not the relationship between the players and the owners and the health of the industry over the next five years, 10 years, 20 years. Uh, so I think they, they missed the boat on that. And on the player side, it was about, you know, feeling like we weren't being treated fairly. Um, you know, when we sign our contracts, it's not a per-game amount. It's not a non-guaranteed and a signing bonus. It's We sign for $10 million or $5 million or, you know, the vast majority of players are making, uh, you know, less, less than $1 million. So they may sign for 550000 which is the league minimum. And then if they get hurt in spring training and never play – they don't get paid less. They still get paid their salary. So in the beginning, we agreed to uh, 
you know, prorate our salaries per the game, per the number of games played. It didn't seem to make sense that, you know, we would be paid for 162 games if we were only going to play 80 or 60 or something like that. Right. But the owners repeatedly were asking us to take additional cuts on top of the prorated amounts. And what, what I think what they did is they just decided, look, this is the amount of money we're willing to spend because all their offers came in around the 30, like mid 30% of our full salary. So whether that was 80 games with 50% of prorated pay or it was, you know, 60 games at full prorated pay or whatever, it all came out to be almost exactly the same amount of money. So they clearly were looking to protect their bottom line. About the CBA coming into the future, what what are we looking at? Uh, because, it, yes, it, it seems like you mentioned that it was kind of uh, damaged the relations between the union and uh, and the league. What is the future uh, for the CBA? Well, you got um, <laughs> two freight trains on the same track headed directly towards each other. Uh, so... Hopefully we're able to find a solution and uh, divert the trains so they can peacefully coexist. But uh, the way it's set up right now, it's, it doesn't look good for uh, for CBA. Well, Trevor, I've got you in my draft next week because we are drafting for baseball for 60 games, and I got you high up. And one of the things that you said that convinced me is that you said you wanted to, to pitch more. Uh, I, I, yeah. Yes, it's a 60-game season, but you wanted to, to pitch more to get your reps in. Can you expand more on that? Yeah, so I actually I take a lot of measurements on myself on a daily basis. I draw blood, I do heart rate monitor, um, heart rate variability, throwing loads, like all, all sorts of different stuff, force plate measurements. So I collect like 50 data points on myself every day. Um, and so I can look at how that affects my recovery curves and – when I'm in optimal shape to train, to pitch, and stuff like that. And what we found over two or three years of doing that is I actually am most optimized to pitch on the fourth day of a rotation instead of the fifth day. I recover best, and I'm, I'm most primed to, to pitch on that day. So I would prefer to pitch, um, I guess, with three days rest, so every fourth day, uh, regularly anyway, uh, during, a, during a normal season. But especially during a 60-game season, there's no risk uh, wearing down towards the end because I'll be pitching about half, even even going on four days, I'll be pitching uh, about half of what I normally do during a regular season. So I would like to do that. Hopefully it happens. Um, obviously the most important thing is helping the team win and trying to get in the playoffs and, and win a World Series. But um, personally, if, I, if it was just me in a vacuum, that's what I'd like to do. So, Trevor, if you pitched in the 50s, 60s, or 70s, you'd have your wish uh, with a four-man rotation. How do you convince your, your manager that, that you should go every fourth day? Well, it's, uh, it's having honest conversations about it. Uh, I've presented the data. I've talked to him about how I feel and uh, why I feel that way, how I would handle the different situations, how it would potentially affect you know the other people in the rotation, uh, different ways around that. There's a couple different options. So. I actually made a presentation, um, a brief presentation, uh, outlining all the different ways that you could go about it and some different options and different problems that would have to be overcome or problems that would be solved by it. And we've been having that conversation for uh, close to a year now, actually. Um, but it's a, it's a conversation that I'll have with uh, every team we talk to uh, this offseason when I'm a free agent. So it's been good practice getting that, uh, getting that presentation kind of outlined and, and talking about it and seeing, seeing how it's perceived. But, 
Yeah, David's been great. Uh, he's been open to it and willing to listen to me, which is not something I can say for all the managers that I've had in my baseball career. So um, it's been it's been good. Trevor, let's talk about your business because the business of Trevor, you have managed it a little bit differently all along the way, made some big, bold choices from the beginning, starting with your representation. Yeah. So that was the first thing that, um, I, the first kind of foray into looking at money in a, a little different way. Um, most players make their salaries and it's a lot of money and they're able to live comfortably and that's all their ambition. Um, you know, they, or they, they don't really have any business ambitions, but they don't realize that, you know, they're, they're not really getting the, the service for the amount of money that they're paying their agent. A, a typical fee, maybe 4% or 5%. The problem is, and the way traditional agencies are set up, you have guys that are in the big leagues that make arbitration or free agency that are paying the 4 or 5%, and then you support a large group of minor leaguers uh, or people who aren't paying anything to the agent that may be young big leaguers by charging the top guys more. So it's kind of, a, in a way, it's like a socialistic uh, setup. Uh, the way the, the way Luba Sports works is you pay for you know the work that, uh, is done for you. You pay on an hourly basis. So if you just want your contract negotiated and, and no other help, which is really what most players want, you know, they, they want someone to negotiate their contract for them, and then they just want to go play baseball and spend time with their family or whatever their hobbies are. And so that doesn't, they don't require a lot of time uh, or, or work outside of the contract negotiation. Well, they won't pay for all the, all that, the difference, I guess, between the hourly rate and the, uh, the flat percentage. Um, or if you do want the work done for you, then you're paying for it, which allows uh, Luba Sports to give you the service that you really are looking for. And that could be marketing. It could be stats. It could be player development. It could be business development. It could anything. So uh, it just seemed to make more sense to pay for the services that I wanted that are it's customizable to me specifically. So it's not putting me in a, in a box with every other player and kind of treating, treating everybody the same. I, I feel like at this day and age, baseball is so customizable on the field with scouting reports and player development plans for each individual player that representation should be the same way. I always believe that Major League Baseball will always be around because it will rebound from this moment that we have never experienced before in sports. I worry about the minor league teams because it's a lot of fun when you go to a minor league baseball game and you see the different experience in that. But with the COVID-19 pandemic, it has taken a, a huge hit. How do you see that rebounding, sir? I'm worried about it. I don't know if it's going to rebound. Um, some of the teams will rebound because it's it's so important to the fabric of big league baseball and MLB. Uh, the problem is I think MLB was already looking to cut uh, a large number of minor league teams. Um, and by cut them, I, I mean not like to span the franchise, but just not be an unofficial MILB team anymore. They could be an indie ball team. They could you know, join another league or something like that. But uh, I think that with, uh, with the pandemic and having cut all of minor league baseball this year, it just opens the door to cut uh, the rest of what they were looking to cut already um, out in the future. And the problem is that you know the union, the players' association, doesn't technically represent minor league players, so it's hard to argue 
uh, on behalf of them that there really isn't a strong, um, I guess, support system or support organization for minor league baseball to to argue against MLB and try to fight that. So, um, yeah, I, I don't know. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not too positive about minor leagues remaining the same the same way that they were and that all the teams will recover. I think there'll be less teams uh, moving into the future. Trevor, uh, one of your uh, businesses that you've launched is uh, Momentum, and uh, it's uh, aimed to change the way baseball is marketed to younger fans. And we're all, as baseball fans that have all played it ourselves, uh, concerned about losing young fans. Uh, if you go to any most cities and towns now, kids are playing lacrosse instead of baseball in the spring. How are we going to get the young fans back to baseball? Well, it starts with the players and the personalities and creating a connection between those young kids and the players in some way. That's really what momentum exists to do is to connect fans and players on a human level. Um, You know, as a kid growing up, I looked out on the field and I saw people that were superstars. They were larger than life. And there really was no way uh, for me to connect with them on, on that human level. I didn't feel like I was the same as them. I didn't feel like I had the same interests as them because I didn't know them at all. And then when I was 12, I had a chance to do a, a, a throwing camp with Alan Jager, a long toss camp. And at that camp, uh, Barry Zito was there. He was one of Alan's clients, and Barry was my favorite pitcher at the time. And I got to meet Barry and talk to him, and I realized, that, like, oh, he isn't this, this alien you know, being, he's a, he's a human. He's just really, really good at baseball. And that gave me all the inspiration I needed to try to become really good at baseball and to keep playing and to keep going and working and all that. And so without that moment, uh, who knows, you know, kind of where my attention may have been been taken to once I got into, you know, middle school or um, yeah, middle school, high school, college, stuff like that. And I think those moments are really missing. So, or for today's youth, they're missing. So trying to find ways like the NBA has done to create uh, more, identify more like pop culture um, and, and highlight those personalities in the game that, that are into that stuff, to highlight the personalities that are into you know, hunting or fishing or cooking or fashion or video games or whatever it is, and, and get those stories and those personalities out in front of a nationwide network of baseball fans. Uh, one of the main issues is if you play in a small market, and basically the, the big markets in baseball are like Chicago, New York, Boston, uh, L.A., and then you have Houston's a fairly big market. But I mean, these are, you're looking at maybe on the top end, one-third of the teams. If you play in a smaller market, it's hard for people in L.A. who might be really big video game fans to know that Blake Snell is a huge gamer or Trevor May is a huge gamer because they play in Tampa and Minnesota, respectively. So they may not get that access to that player to even understand, oh, I'm like this person. I could potentially be a big leaguer playing baseball is cool. So that's that's one of the things that, that needs to change. There's a lot more things that need to change in baseball, but that's really what we're trying to do at Momentum is connect players and fans on a human level, get their stories out, get the personalities out there in front of the fans, um, and bring some life and, and energy back into the sport. I got to ask you, you know, when you think about the economics of baseball, you know the dollars and cents so incredibly well. We talked a little bit about the CBA earlier. We talked a little bit about your business. What are the economics of baseball going forward? Because I have to say, as a longtime fan, 
I'm worried about the state of the game when it comes to it being a business. I think they're in a good spot right now. Um, if you look at the recent trend, you would see nothing but positivity because revenues have increased uh, the past uh, however many years, five years. I, it's been a long time since baseball revenue has actually fallen. Uh, and that's just the revenue that is reported. It's not the, the revenue that's hidden or you know whatever all that stuff is. There's plenty of that going on in the, in the game, too. But um, So you would say that it's in a good it's in a good spot. It's on a good trend. The problem is um, the, the demographic of baseball fans, the average baseball age continues to rise. The average right. age of a baseball fan continues to rise. So if you're just looking at the numbers right now, you'd say, oh, we're in a good spot. Keep doing what we're doing. And I think that's kind of the strategy that's being employed by the league. The problem is, you know, in 10 years or 20 years, there's a huge cliff that we're running towards. Because when the baseball fans right now who are 57 on average are 67 or 77 or 87, like you're gonna at some point you're gonna lose your average fan, the average you know baseball fan, and then where are you gonna be? So if you're not connecting with young fans, if you're not bringing in new baseball fans and making the game uh, more modern, more interesting for um, for today's society, today's attention span, today's interests, then. You know, you just there's a huge cliff coming, and I, I liken it to the Big Short uh, a little bit. Those guys were able to identify the cliff that was coming, even though the numbers didn't necessarily reflect it, and they made a bet uh, on that on their recognition of it, and ended up winning big when the country lost big. Um, but that's kind of what I see going on in baseball right now, and it's worrisome. So I'm, that's one of the reasons I've started momentum, and I'm trying to help solve that problem that kind of leads into the next question when you talk about the older fans out there and and the need to generate younger fans and there's the conversation going on now about team names and nicknames and specifically the cleveland indians now they're thinking about changing their nickname because uh, native americans uh, have been upset about the name itself i'd like to ask your thoughts about changing nicknames and, and getting your ideas? Yeah, I, with the Indians specifically, you know, I spent a lot of years in Cleveland and was with that fan base for a long time. Um, and I never got the sense that the, the nickname or the name itself, Indians, were it was in any way derogatory. I think it was meant as a reflection of, uh, you know, honoring American in, uh, Native American history and, and stuff like that. I certainly can see how some people may not feel that way. So it's a complicated issue. I mean, if you talk to most Cleveland fans, at least the ones that I've talked to, the majority of them enjoy the name Indians. They enjoy the logo, the Chief Wahoo, the, uh, um, and the mascots and all that. Um, but there certainly are people that, that don't feel that way, and especially in today's culture where you know social media has really given people the opportunity to amplify their voice so small groups can seem very loud and get a lot done which is a good thing in some ways and and a bad thing in others um certainly as an athlete when people want to troll you and they amplify their voice on you it's not it's not nearly as fun but uh I, i don't have a strong opinion really on whether it should remain or whether it should uh you know, be changed. I think it needs to be a discussion that's had in an official setting, uh, not on social media. I think a lot of people need to be consulted, but 
um, at the end of the day, my my main focus and my main um, mission in baseball is to to make it more popular as a game and make the players more popular with the fans. Um, and I don't think the the name of a team really changes that one way or the other. Trevor, let me ask you what's going on in, in today's workouts as you are with the uh, Cincinnati Reds. Uh, how safe do you feel, A, and B, Give us the routine for how often you are tested. I read that you're going to be tested every other day. Then I read that, no, it was only going to be just between July 3rd and July 5th. And there's this organization out in Utah that's conducting all the tests that a lot of people aren't happy about. <laughs> yeah. it's. Um, i got to start by saying that it's an incredibly large undertaking for MLB and for the teams. I mean, it, it seems fairly easy when you strip it down to test, you know, the, the 25 or the 30 or the 60 players that are in talent, wow, how hard that, how, how hard can that be? But you have all the staff, uh, you have all the different regulations like that are, that are going on to try to protect the players, um, the, the clubhouse attendants, the chefs, the, uh, the training staff, strength and conditioning coaches, all the front office. Like there's, there's a lot of people, the security guards that, that have to follow a lot of regulations. So, and then you you multiply that across thirty teams. Uh, it, it's a it's a large undertaking. So to have a couple hiccups in the beginning, I, I think would be to be expected. Um, as far as the daily routine goes, I've been tested every other day so far. Uh, we wake up in the morning and we have a survey to fill out. That's really how it starts. We answer twenty or twenty five questions. I don't know exactly how many are on there uh, about our symptoms and who we've been exposed to and stuff like that. We take our temperature in the morning and then when we go to the field before we check in um they take our temperature again have us answer the questions again and then every other day we do a spit test uh which i don't know if people understand what the spit test is but briefly you have like a little vial like a spittoon on top a little funnel and you have to spit into it until the saliva is above a certain line and then a lot of times uh there's there'll be bubbles uh, in, in the saliva, and so you can't use those. So you have to like take the top spittoon off and wipe the bubbles away, and then there's spit all over the tube, and then it's kind of a messy process. Uh, but that's that's been happening every other day. As far as the results getting back, uh, I think that's where the issues have come in with the facility in Utah not being able to handle the volume. Um, I haven't heard too much about that, so I'm not super comfortable speaking on why that may or may not be happening. Uh, I've just heard you know a couple people mention it in passing. Uh, but then after we do our spit test, if we have a spit test that day, we go into the clubhouse. We're, we're all wearing masks in the clubhouse. Um, traditionally, you would go to the food room. There'd be a, a spread of food out for you. Now we we're, we can't interact with with the chefs and uh, and un, you know basically uncovered food. So uh, we order meals on an app in the morning and then times to pick them up. So our lunch will be in a prepackaged container for us, and we'll go and sit socially distanced and and eat. Uh, which kind of disrupts the flow of like normally you'd have three or four guys sitting at a table shooting the breeze, but you know that's a little bit more difficult now. Um, you know masks are all around the uh, the facilities. If you're sitting in the hot tub, you have to have two masks on. Um, and then you know when you go out in the field, uh, some guys are wearing masks, some guys aren't, and that's when it really feels more like baseball. You're just getting your traditional workouts in and throwing live batting practices and having scrimmages and trying to get ready for a season in half the time that we normally would take to get ready for the season. But 
uh, it's quite different. It's quite different. It doesn't feel the same indoors at all in preparation. Uh, the only time it really feels like baseball is on the field. Yeah. So, Trevor, I, w- I want to wrap up by asking you just a little bit more about sort of your life as a businessman because, you know, we spend a lot of time on this show, you know, talking with athletes and those who work uh, with them about their ambitions off the field, off the court, out of the arena, whatever it is. You seem more ambitious than most, if I may say, and and but it does feel like you're taking sort of uh, – a page from the playbook from a lot of NBA players and others. And you mentioned that earlier when you talked about engagement via technology and, and whatnot. Why do you think that is? Is this just sort of who you've always been? You've always sort of had that entrepreneurial drive. You've always been able to sort of go against the grain and making choices, especially when it comes to business. Like what, what is it sort of about you that sort of makes you that way? Not to put you on the couch too much. <laughs> Uh, I'm actually sitting on my couch right now. So I'm <laughs> to that. Um, no, I think it's, it's, it started when I was young with my dad. And he said he always taught me to plan for the future, to have long-term goals, and to work towards, or, to, to work towards those. So in baseball, he's like, well, you may not be the best right now, but can you be better tomorrow? Can you be better in a year? You know, can, you want to be the best when you're in high school because that was always my goal. Excuse me. Uh, my, my goal is always to play in high school. And so my entire childhood, I worked towards that. And so my dad was an engineer, and he taught me the process of working towards something, which is know where you are today, know where you want to go, design a process to get there, and a way of evaluating the process so you can hydrate it. And in doing that, it taught me to look and find all the areas that were inefficient in what I was doing. Uh, inefficient in my skill set, inefficient in my process, inefficient in my evaluation process, stuff like that. And so after 20 years of being, you know, living that process, I started applying it to other things. I just, I had trained myself at that point to see inefficiencies in a marketplace, to see inefficiencies in an organization, um, in myself as, as a baseball player, in relationships, stuff like that. So it's a little bit of a blessing and a little bit of a curse at this point because my mind is just drawn naturally to the inefficiencies that I see. Um, I have a hard time celebrating wins uh, or celebrating successes because they're never perfect, and I just I see the imperfections. I end up celebrating my victories and my and my wins and my accomplishments usually a couple years in retrospect, looking back and saying, "Man, that was really cool. I actually did that." Um, but that that kind of applies to baseball uh, as an industry, and I see the inefficiencies in it. I care about it. I want to see it a certain way and see it flourishing, and all I seem to see are inefficiencies. Uh, So I've tried to plug some of those and and to fix them. Um, You know, one of those is is with Lewis Sports. I think that's going to be a a huge thing for for the industry and for players, Uh, having a different option. I think competition in the marketplace is great for everybody involved. I think it draws the best out of everybody, and it gets rid of complacency. Uh, so I'm really excited for the future of, of what Luba Sports can can offer for the industry. And then with momentum, I, you know, there's the there's the fan engagement and the connection problem, the attracting young fans and and for players, you know, being in small markets and not being able to get their voice out there in an easy way, not having content to grow their socials and uh, and their influence during their time in the league. And then on top of that, once you once you do that, well, you know, how how do you capitalize on uh, 
on growing your your voice and having a larger platform as an individual player. So I have I have my eyes set on helping solve that problem. And then uh, on the other side of it, like players are getting taken advantage of in, in some ways with the, with their data. You know, they have three options right now. Don't don't use data, uh, use data, and don't have anybody looking at it to try to give you insight other than the team. Uh, if you don't go through the team, then no one's really looking at it for you. Uh, or if you do go through the team, then the team has access to all your data, uh, sleep tracking data, health tracking data, swing data, pitching data, all this stuff. And then the, the belief is that they may use that against you. I mean, the most notable version of that is teams are able to identify, uh, you know, who's going to perform well or who's projected to perform well yeah. based on their age. And they talk about the aging curves. And uh, now you're seeing players that get to normally when they would sign large free agent contracts that aren't getting offered those contracts, but they have no way of arguing against it. So that's another inefficiency I see that I'm currently building something for. Uh, I'm excited to kind of get that out over the next year and um, and launch all of this. But I see inefficiencies, and that's uh, that's kind of why I am the way I am in training. It's why I train the way I do. That's why I measure so much data on myself. Um, and that's you know I, I like doing something to help people and to fix the inefficiencies that I see. It drives me nuts when I see something so clearly, and I tell everybody, and no one, nothing happens. No one does anything about it, and I just get frustrated at some point. I'm like, fine, I'll do something about it. Right. You know, I'm I'm in business. I'm in in baseball. I'm in you know <laughs> mentorship and and all that stuff. So I'm I'm overloaded, but you know I'm I'm enjoying every second of it. It sounds like uh, that is your natural state. Well, Trevor Bauer, best of luck to you. Thank you so much. We know it is, uh, as you said at the top, a hectic time, uh, but uh, hectic in a good way, we hope, because we're going to see some baseball, even uh, even as tortured as it was to get here. I think we're all happy to see that happening. Cincinnati Reds pitcher Trevor Bauer joining us. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me on, guys. So, Trevor Bauer, guys, uh, young man in a hurry, I think it's fair to say, Michael Barr. Yes, I I I am impressed by him with his, his skills uh, with business. And what scares me uh, is what he said about minor league baseball. Yeah, uh, and he said the future does not look great for a number of teams, and that's too bad because I I really like minor league. Uh, games and the experience of being there you see all those goofy little promotions that that really draw the crowd in and and people have fun doing it and now uh, it's totally in danger of not coming back for some teams Lynchy, what did, what did you think? I mean, you're a longtime baseball fan. You've seen this yeah. game grow up. I mean, what he said about sort of the big short uh, analogy, wow. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And, I, and I, I thought that it was fascinating how he felt a disconnect with baseball when he was growing up until he went to this camp and played catch with Barry Zito. And then he was hooked and said, this is what I want to be. These, these are real people that I can see and touch and interact with. And he feels that the game needs to create more connections between the players and the young fans. And we've had this discussion before about how many kids are playing lacrosse instead of baseball. And he wants to, through this Momentum uh, TV project that he's on, he wants to highlight some of the personalities and show that they're more than baseball, that they, uh, have, they, they, they can cook, they can hunt, they can fish, they read, they write, they play an instrument. And he needs to get those stories out in front of people to, to hook and connect with some of the young fans. That, would, that, that impressed me the most from a conversation. 
My goal is to be the number one pick. That's something I've been dreaming of since a kid. It feels better to be number one than number five. I wear the number because of Mike. We have a chance to go for three in a row. Good numbers at a good time. When I first started wearing that number, I was just happy and proud. Bloomberg Business of Sports, the number of the week. That's right. I'm back. And it's time for the number of the week. Yes. <laughs> missed this. Yes. We, we were not yes. able. To, we were not able to stand this up in your absence, Michael Barr. <laughs> Litchie and I would just like we would we would virtually just stare at each other and be like, I don't know. I don't, we can't do this without Barr. Uh, all right. So hit us. What is it? All right. Uh, we're going to play the uh, prices right range game. This is okay. according to what Pelican Bay says. What would a share of the Atlanta Braves be worth? A share, like a, a single share. share, a single share. This is my, this is my team. Um, yeah, I you mean, should come up with this one. Pressure on you, Jason. This yeah, week. there's a lot of pressure on me. I have, I have no, I, I really have no idea. I mean, it's probably one of the more valuable. Like, it's a top tier franchise, so. I don't know. Maybe you buy it. You could you could buy a share if they're splitting. I don't know how many they're splitting it by. Uh, Ten thousand dollars. <laughs> okay, <laughs> you're way off the board on oh that boy. one, man. It's like, <laughs> but what's a share? Old, but what's a share? It's I'm an overbid. Go, uh, okay, <laughs> I'm gonna I'm, I'm gonna go with. Hammering Hank Aaron's number forty four. Yeah. I'm going to go forty four. There you go. Good. Actually, you're very, you're very, you're very close. See, it's there you go. Between thirty and forty dollars. Wow. Okay. So Lynchy wins clearly, <laughs> and obviously this is why the Red Sox are a much better team than the Atlanta Braves because their fans are a lot smarter. Yeah, you bid ten thousand dollars on that waffle maker, man. That's yeah. not going to happen. <laughs> so you can get a share of the Braves for that much or for that little. Between thirty to forty dollars. So how does this work? This, this is uh, this is interesting. It's like I I guess because of COVID nineteen that uh, they're kind of on the watch list of companies that were most impacted by the short term, and uh, they're trying to seize on the opportunity to buy shares of the team. All right. Well, I was I, I'm clearly a sucker. I was willing to pay a lot more for a share of the Braves <laughs> if I had that sort of money. I wasn't yeah, we a journalist. A we got a bridge up here in Boston for <laughs> yeah, you. Seriously. <laughs> yeah. This was this was the point, Lynchy, where you should say, no, that's how much a share of the Sox cost. The yeah. Braves <laughs> much, much lower because we win championships. Oh man. That's All funny. right. That's a good one. That's a good one. Even though I was completely stumped. I'm I'm happy that I'm happy that it's much more affordable. <laughs> so you've been listening to Bloomberg Business of Sports. We're here each and every week at the same time, plus online wherever you get your podcast. Get those Mondays, Wednesdays, and Thursdays. I'm Jason Kelly on Twitter at Jason Kelly News. And I'm Michael Barr. On Twitter, you can find me at Big Bar Sports. And I'm Mike Lynch. You can find me at Lynchy WCVB. You're listening to Bloomberg Business of Sports from Bloomberg Radio around the world. <laughs> 